Welcome to another Salvation by Grace Sunday morning message. Salvation by Grace is the teaching ministry of Grace Christian Assembly, a Sovereign Grace Fellowship in Smyrna, Tennessee. You'll find us on the internet at salvationbygrace.org. We are currently studying the Apostle Paul's letter to the Galatians. So grab your Bible and join the congregation of GCA along with our teaching pastor, Jim McClarty. Galatians chapter 1, don't turn there, turn to Acts 13, and we will get there eventually. Whenever you preach the grace of God the way that Paul preached the grace of God, whenever you're willing to say the things that the Bible actually says about the grace of God, you run the risk of somebody somewhere calling you antinomian. I've been called that for a lot of years now. The word means substitute or in place of or against nomos, which is the word for law. So people accuse you of being against the law. Paul dealt with that. Paul himself was accused, as we're going to see this morning, of teaching people to abandon Moses altogether. And when you read the book of Galatians, 
it does sound like that's what Paul is saying. And so it's really important to understand the New Testament sociological divisions, the cultural divisions that Paul talks about. Here's what I mean by that. Paul is a Jew, a Hebrew of the Hebrews. He's from the tribe of Benjamin. He never at any point tells Jewish people to abandon the Abrahamic covenant or the mark of that covenant. He always extols the virtues of Christ within a Jewish context when he's talking to a Jewish audience. Because after all, Christ is the Jewish Savior. He is the Jewish Messiah. And Paul never attempts to extricate Christ from the Jewish heritage. However, when it comes to Gentiles, Paul is adamant that Gentiles, who were not at Mount Sinai to begin with, Gentiles who have received the Holy Spirit of God, Gentiles who have come to faith in Christ, Gentiles who have the evidence that God has already chosen them before the foundation of the world, those Gentiles, Paul adamantly argues, do not have to go back and keep the law and do not have to be circumcised. Far too often when you listen to people talk about the New Testament, they flatten it out. And they think, well, now that Christ is here, now that the church exists, there's no more Jew, there's no more Gentile. Which is true that Paul writes, when it comes to salvation in the Jewish Messiah, there's neither Jew nor Gentile, male nor female, free nor bond. His point being, everybody can come to Christ. But he never does away with the distinctions between male and female. When he's writing to Onesimus, he's writing about slavery. And he never tries to abolish the slave and master relationship. Even though he says in Christ, there's neither free nor bond. Even though he says in Christ, there's neither male nor female. Same thing, he never abolishes the distinction between Jew and Gentile. And so... When Paul is accused of being antinomian, when Paul is accused of being against Moses, when he is in Jerusalem, when he is among the Jews, he goes to great pains to show that he is not against Israel. He is not against their history. And in fact, he sees Christ as the culmination of Jewish religion and history. He doesn't try to divorce Christ from the history of Judaism. He says he is the completion of Judaistic religion and practice. And that's what we're going to read in Acts 13 this morning. Because it needs to be understood, and I need to keep stressing it, that when Paul talks about this radical freedom and grace that the Gentiles in Galatia have, at no point does he ever say, and that does away with Israel. Because far too often, that's how it's read. Far too often, people say, well, now, because Christ is here, because Gentiles have come to faith, well, then that's the eradication of Israel. And God doesn't care about Israel anymore. And he has no future for Israel. And he's not going to keep the covenant promises he made to Israel. It's all been flattened out now. But you don't find any evidence of that anywhere in the New Testament. So let's read Acts 13. I'm going to start reading at verse 13. Paul and his companions put out to sea from Paphos, and they came to Perga in Pamphylia, and John left them and returned to Jerusalem. But going on from Perga, they arrived in Pisidian Antioch, and on the Sabbath day, they went into the synagogue and sat down. Is Paul a convert at this point? Yes, he is. He's a Christ follower at this point. So if his theology was that now that Gentiles are being saved, 
God has done with Israel, why is it that we see continually when Paul goes into a new city, he goes among the Jews. He goes into the synagogues. And he goes there on the Sabbath day. Even though Gentile believers are meeting on Sunday, the part of the law that the Jews are following is the Sabbath, which is the sign of the Mosaic Covenant. And yet on the Sabbath day, Paul goes into the synagogue and he sits down. And after the reading of the law and the prophets, the synagogue officials sent to them saying, brethren, if you have any word of exhortation for the people, say it. This was very common in synagogues. The word synagogue just means meeting place. It was a meeting place for the Jews where they would get together on the Sabbath. And it was very common after the reading from the Old Testament, which is what the phrase, the law and the prophets means, after they would read something from the Old Testament, they would have a time where anybody who wanted to say anything could. And that was the opportunity Paul was waiting for. And Paul stood up. And motioning with his hand, he said, Men of Israel, and you who fear God, listen. He just made a distinction between the God-fearers, Gentiles who had converted to Judaism, and the actual descendants of Abraham, the men of Israel. Now listen to what he's going to do. He's going to show them that he knows the history and tradition of Israel. And he's going to recount for them their own history. This is a perfect little summation of the entire Old Testament, the entire history of Israel, starting at verse 17. The God of this people, Israel, chose our fathers and made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt. And with an uplifted arm, he led them out from it. And for a period of about 40 years, he put up with them in the wilderness. And when he had destroyed seven nations in the land of Canaan, he distributed their land as an inheritance, all of which took about 450 years. And after these things, he gave them judges until Samuel the prophet. And then they asked him for a king. And God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, for 40 years. And after he had removed him, he raised up David to be their king, concerning whom he also testified and said, I have found David, the son of Jesse, a man after my own heart, who will do all things according to my will. For the offspring of this man... According to the promise, he's now reciting the Davidic promise. From the offspring of this man, according to promise, God has brought to Israel a Savior, Jesus. After John had proclaimed before his coming a baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. And while John was completing his course, he kept saying, What do you suppose that I am? I am not he. But behold, one is coming after me, the sandals of whose feet I'm not worthy to untie. Brethren, sons of Abraham's family, and those among you who fear God, you God-fearers, to us the word of this salvation is sent out. For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers recognizing neither him nor understanding the utterances of the prophets which are read every Sabbath fulfilled by condemning him. And though they found no ground for putting him to death, they asked Pilate that he be executed. And when they had carried out all that was written concerning him, they took him down from the cross and they laid him in a tomb But God raised him up from the dead. And for many days he appeared to those who came up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, the very ones who are now his witnesses to the people. 
And we preach to you the good news of the promise made to the fathers. Very interesting. After explaining who Jesus was, how he died, that he is raising again, Paul ties that back to the Abrahamic covenant promises that God made to Israel's fathers. He is proving to these Israelites, to these Jews, and to these God-fearers that Jesus is the fulfillment of all the things the law and the prophets had ever prophesied about. And he even, in explaining that to them, says they didn't understand it. Every Sabbath, the prophets are read. Every Sabbath, they look at it, but they didn't get it. They didn't understand it because they did exactly what it said they were going to do. And they ended up killing the prince of life, exactly like the prophets said they were going to do. But then in keeping with the promise, the Abrahamic promise, Okay, so what are the elements of the Abrahamic promise? The first was, I'm going to give you this land in perpetuity, this land of Canaan. He already talked about that. Brought them out of Egypt, brought them to that land. This land is yours. The other promise was you're going to have descendants like the stars of the heavens, like the sands of the seas. Okay, that also happened. But the part of the promise that is often overlooked is through your descendants, Through your seed, all the families of the earth are going to be blessed. And it is through Christ, the seed of Abraham, Christ, the Jewish Messiah, that all the nations of the earth, all the Gentiles, are also going to be blessed. That is part of the inheritance that is promised in the Abrahamic covenant. That's what Paul is getting at here when he says, we preach to you the good news of the promise that was made to the fathers, that God has fulfilled this promise to our children in that he raised up Jesus. As it is also written in the second Psalm, thou art my son today, I have begotten thee. And as for the fact that he raised him up from the dead, No more to return to decay. And he has spoken this way. I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. So not only is Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection the satisfaction of the Abrahamic covenant, he is also the satisfaction of the Davidic covenant. Paul is demonstrating that the Jewish history, the Jewish prophets are being fulfilled in this Christ, Jesus I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. Therefore, he also says in another psalm, Thou wilt not allow thy holy one to undergo decay. For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, he died. He fell asleep. And he was laid among his fathers. And he underwent decay. But he whom God raised did not undergo decay. Therefore, let it be known to you, brethren, that through him forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And through him, everyone who believes is freed from all things from which you could not be freed through the law of Moses. Take heed, brethren, therefore, so that the things spoken of in the prophets may not come upon you. Behold, you scoffers, and marvel, and perish, for I am accomplishing a work in your days, a work which you will never believe, though someone should describe it to you. And as Paul and Barnabas were going out, the people kept begging that these things might be spoken to them the next Sabbath. And when the meeting of the synagogue was broken up, many of the Jews and of the God-fearing proselytes followed Paul and Barnabas, who, speaking to them, were urging them to continue in the grace of God. So Paul just recounted the history of Israel. The history of Israel is steeped in covenants and the law, the law of Moses. Then Paul very honestly says, the death, burial, the resurrection of Christ can free you from the things that the law of Moses could never free you from. 
which is why Jesus on the planet would say things like, whom the Son sets free is free indeed. He was talking about freedom from the law, freedom from the condemnation and curse that comes with the law, and freedom to worship God in spirit and in truth, and freedom from the sin debt that you owe God. Christ died, as Paul said, to free you from your sins so that everyone who believes is freed from all things from which you could not be freed through the law of Moses. And he said that in a room full of Jews and proselytes, God-fearers. So that is background to Acts 21. Turn there. Anybody bored yet? No. Now Paul is in Jerusalem. And the elders in Jerusalem are going to accuse him and say, you tell Jews everywhere to forsake Moses. Well, that is what it sounded like. He did say that Jesus Christ can free you from the things that the law of Moses cannot free you from. And that is true, and that's a fact. But what happens when Paul is confronted with, are you antinomian? Here's what happens. Chapter 21 of the book of Acts, starting at verse 1. And when it came about that we had parted from them and had set sail, we ran a straight course to Cause, and the next day to Rhodes and from there to Patara. And having found a ship crossing over to Phoenicia, we went aboard and we set sail. And we had come in sight of Cyprus, leaving it on the left. And we set sail to Syria and we landed in Tyre, for there the ship was to unload its cargo. And after looking up the disciples, we stayed there for seven days. And they kept telling Paul, through the Spirit, not to go to Jerusalem. And when it came about that our days there were ended, we departed and we started on our journey while they all, with wives and children, escorted us until we were out of the city. And after kneeling down on the beach and praying, we said farewell to one another. Then we went on board the ship and they returned to their home again. And when we had finished our voyage from Tyre, we arrived at Ptolemaeus. And after greeting the brethren, we stayed with them for a day. And the next day we departed and we came to Caesarea and we entered the house of Philip, the evangelist, who was one of the seven, and we stayed with him. Now this man had four virgin daughters who were prophetesses. And as we were staying there for some days, a certain prophet named Agabus came down from Judea and coming to us, he took Paul's belt and he bound his own feet and hands and said, This is what the Holy Spirit says. In this way, the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and will deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. And when we heard this, we as well as the local residents began begging him, begging Paul not to go to Jerusalem. Then Paul answered, what are you doing, weeping and breaking my heart? For I am ready not only to be bound, but even to die at Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. And since he would not be persuaded, we fell silent, remarking, the will of the Lord be done. And after these days, we got ready and we started our way up to Jerusalem. And some of the disciples from Caesarea came also with us, taking us to Nisan in Cyprus, a disciple of long standing with whom we were to lodge. And when we had come to Jerusalem, the brethren received us gladly. And now the following day, Paul went in with us to see James and all the elders were present. And after he had greeted them, he began to relate one by one the things which God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. When they heard it, they began glorifying God and they said to him, You see, brother, how many thousands there are among the Jews of those who have believed, and they are also zealous for the law. And they have been told about you, that you are teaching all Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake 
Moses, that is the word apostasia, the word from which we get apostasy. To go away from Moses, to depart Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children, nor to walk according to the customs, okay? Paul is here among the Jews. He's been told by several prophets, if you go to Jerusalem, you're going to end up bound. The Jews are going to hate you so much, you're going to end up being given to the Gentiles. Paul says, I have to go to Jerusalem anyway. I have to proclaim Christ there When he gets there, he is confronted by James and the elders in Jerusalem who say to him, look, there's all these believing Jews, but they keep hearing from you. They are zealous for the law, and they keep hearing about you that you're telling all the Jews among the Gentiles to forsake Moses. That's certainly what it sounded like he was doing. It certainly sounded like he was saying the law has passed away. The law cannot accomplish your salvation. The law cannot free you. Only Christ can free you from your debt of sin to God. Now he's being accused. Now he's in trouble. Now he's standing in Jerusalem and being told that you're claiming that Jews should forsake Moses and they should not circumcise their children nor should they walk according to the customs. Is that a true charge? Am I boring you? No. Is that a true charge? No, it's not. He never said to the Jews, don't circumcise your children. In fact, he circumcised Timothy so that Timothy could come into the temple. However, when it came to Titus, Titus was a Gentile. So Paul would not circumcise him because Paul kept the distinction between Jew and Gentile and he knew each of their histories and he never mixed and matched those two. He knew who the covenant people were and he knew who the new covenant people were. And all the people who were in the new covenant among them There was neither Jew nor Gentile, free or bond, male or female. Everyone could come to Christ and be saved. But the Abrahamic covenant was not done away with, either by the coming of the law or the abolishing of the law or the coming of the new covenant. The Abrahamic covenant still stood, according to Paul, as a consequence. He never said that Jews should not circumcise their children. So to prove that, look at what he did and remember the context. This is after the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. This is after he's been preaching to Gentiles and seeing Gentiles come to faith, seeing Gentiles receive the Holy Spirit. Verse 22, what then is to be done? They will certainly hear that you have come here. Therefore, do this that we tell you. We have four men who are under a vow. Take them and purify yourself along with them. Pay their expenses in order that they may shave their heads. And all will know that there is nothing to the things which have been said about you, but that you yourself also walk orderly, keeping the law. Okay, that's an interesting moment. Paul now is being confronted with, you are to shave your head, take a vow, sacrifice an animal, and you're to do all that to prove to the Jews who believe, who are walking according to the law, that you yourself walk according to the law. Isn't this the moment where Paul should go, no, I'm free from the law. Isn't this the moment where Paul should stand up and say, but Jesus freed me from everything that the law could not free me from. What does Paul do? This is a real dilemma moment. But, verse 25, but concerning the Gentiles who have believed, we wrote, having decided that they should abstain from meat sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what is strangled and from pornia, from fornication, then Paul took those men and the next day, purified himself along with them, and he went into the temple, giving notice of the completion of the days of purification, 
until the animal was sacrificed, until the sacrifice was offered for each one of them. And when the seven days were almost over, the Jews from Asia, upon seeing him in the temple, began to stir up the multitude, and they laid hands on him. And that's the beginning of his troubles in Jerusalem. What did Paul just do? Paul, who is adamant that Gentiles are not to be circumcised, nor is the law to be placed on their hearts and conscience. That same Paul, when he is confronted by Jews, saying, you're teaching people everywhere to forsake Moses, do this. Prove to them that you are not against Moses. Shave your head, take a vow, do the seven days of purification in the temple, animal sacrifice, do that, and Paul does it. Why? Why would Paul do that? Why wouldn't he stand up and say, nope, free from the law? Paul will give us the answer to why he did that. Turn to the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 9. When Paul says that he is free, he means really free. He means his conscience before God is so free that he can be like this. 1 Corinthians 9, starting at verse 19. For though I am free from all people, free of everybody, I don't care what your opinion is, I don't care what you think, Paul says, I stand before God. He's the only one who is my judge. I don't care how you judge me or what you think of me. I am free from all people. I don't have to do anything that anybody ever tells me religiously to do. However, though I am free from all people, I have made myself a slave to everybody so that I can gain the more. His devotion was to Christ, to saving people and to bringing people to a knowledge of who Jesus Christ was. And so though he was free from everybody, he enslaved himself to everybody. And then he describes what that looks like, starting in verse 20. To the Jews, I became as a Jew so that I might gain the Jews. It's exactly why he did what he did in Jerusalem. He was not afraid to go shave his head, keep a vow, keep parts of the law, be in the temple. He's not afraid to keep the Sabbath. He's not afraid to keep the feasts. He's not abandoning his Jewish heritage. And when he is among the Jews, he became like a Jew so that he could win or gain the Jews. To those who are under the law, I became as one who is under the law. Though not being under the law myself, so that I might gain those who are under the law. So he's in Jerusalem and they say, see all these people who are zealous for the law and believe? So he says, okay, I'll be one of them. I'll be like one under the law so that I can gain them to Christ, which is why he would stand there and preach Christ to those who were under the law and declare that Christ could free them from the things that the law could never free them from. But verse 21, but to those who are without the law, that'd be the Gentiles, to those who are without the law, I became as one without the law, though not being without the law of God. So he says, even when I am among the Gentiles who do not have the law of Moses, I then behave like the Gentiles who do not have the law of Moses. This is why Paul was free to eat meat that was sacrificed to idols and then sold in the shambles in the markets. He had that kind of freedom before God. He could thank God for whatever it was, and then he could eat it without conscience that he was breaking the law 
because he had the freedom of knowing that Christ satisfied the law and the prophets utterly and completely. Therefore, when he was among those who are without the law, he became like one who was without the law. Nevertheless, he points out, I'm never without law. I'm under the law of Christ. And that's different than the law of Sinai, but it is still the law of God. I am under the law of Christ so that I might gain those who are without the law. To the weak, I became weak. This doesn't mean physically weak. He's talking about people who, for sake of a weak conscience, were not able to do things like eat meat that had been sacrificed to an idol. And so Paul argues If I'm eating with people who have a conscience so that they cannot eat meat sacrificed to an idol, I won't do it either because I don't want them to see my freedom and then take that freedom to themselves because of me and offend their own conscience. So rather than offend them, I'll act like I'm weak like they are. So the weak, strong analogy is those who are weak in faith and those who are strong in faith. But Paul says, to those who are weak, I became weak, so that I might gain those that are weak. I have become all things to all people, so that I might, by all means, save some. I do all things for the sake of the gospel, so that I may become a fellow partaker of it. That is radical freedom. That is astounding freedom. I know I've used this example before, years ago, but I'm going to use it again. Any of you who already know the example, talk amongst yourselves, and I'll just talk to the Internet for a little while. Years ago, there was a preacher friend of mine who said that he was at a meeting of a bunch of other preachers, and they all went out to dinner, And before dinner, the waitress came around to ask them if they wanted drinks. And because it was a table full of preachers, and none of them really knew each other very well, they all got water, and they all got Coke, and that kind of stuff, until one fella said, well, yeah, I'll have, and whatever his wine or alcoholic drink was, yeah, I'll have alcohol. And when he said that, all the other preachers went, can I change my order, too? And, uh, and so more of the preachers at the table were drinking not just water, but having alcohol with their dinner. Finally, it came around to my friend. And he said, no, water's good for me. And they said to him, but brother, don't you have freedom? Don't you have liberty? And he said, yes, but true freedom includes the freedom to say no. And that's true. Genuine freedom is to never be enslaved to anything. That means, like Paul says, to me, because I'm not under law, everything is allowable. But then he says, but not everything is expedient. Not everything is good for you. The example that people bring up all the time is, you know, can a Christian smoke? Apparently they can. Uh, But should they? Probably not. It's probably not a good idea. It's probably not expedient. But can you be a Christian? Sure you can. Yeah. If you have a conscience that allows you to do it, there's no law against it. So, real, true, genuine, Pauline freedom includes the ability to say, I allow and I don't allow. And I have the freedom to be all things to all people. And when I'm sitting among those who have deep-seated traditions religiously, I'm not going to counter their traditions. I'm going to be a guest in their house, and I'm going to preach Christ to them. When I'm with people who have no law, well, then I'm going to be like one who has no law on them. Not that I'm going to truly be lawless, not that I'm truly going to be antinomian, because I am still under the law of Christ. And because I'm under the law of Christ, 
I will allow and disallow things according to my conscience before Christ. Does this make sense? Yes. Because this is the Pauline thinking that we run into in the book of Galatians. And when we read Paul being so adamant against the law, he's being adamant against the law among the Gentiles. So last week, you can turn now, by the way, to Galatians 1. Uh, and the clock is, well, I'm finished. There you go. So turn to Galatians 1, and we'll just have a moment in Galatians 1. Last week, when I got finished, I think I made Micah nervous. So Micah asked me, he said, at what point are you going to introduce into the book of Galatians the idea of the indicative and the imperative? Because it's really important to understand that when you're talking about freedom from the law. He said, because we don't want to be, we don't want to appear lawless, so let me do that now. I was going to hang on until chapter 5 or 6, but Micah dressed up. And so, <laughs> so yeah. Look, the indicative and the imperative is really easy. And once you get this right, it's going to clear up a whole lot of stuff for you. We're not lawless. We're under the law of Christ. And we are free. And so I argue adamantly, free from the law, and I argue adamantly that works can't save you. Because that's what the Bible says. Then people get nervous and say, well, then are you saying we don't do good works? And if you get the indicative imperative right, you'll understand where good works fit. Because Christians indeed do good works. Paul says it over and over again. That's what the whole Be the Christian series was about, is that we do good works. Far too much of religion in the world gets the indicative imperative wrong. Indicative indicates what you are. Imperative, what you do. If I give you an imperative, I'm telling you to do something. If I'm speaking an indicative, I'm talking about who or what you are. Far too much of religion in the world gets that backwards and says, if you want to be this, the indicative, if you want to be this, you want to be saved, you want to be redeemed, you want to be a resident of heaven, if you want the reward, whatever the reward is, if you want your Valhalla moment, if you want your 70 virgins, if you want to meet the that that is behind all that, if you want to go to nirvana, if you, whatever religion you want to talk about, they start with, if you want to be this, you got to do this. And they say the imperatives. So do the imperatives, do the imperatives, and then you'll be the indicative. You got it? I confuse anybody? Paul never once does that. He always starts with the indicative. Who are you? And you are the saved in Christ. You are the bought. You are the redeemed. You are the chosen before the foundation of the world. That is who you are. Now, based on who you are, do this. The indicative always comes before the imperative. The biblical imperatives exist. He recognizes that there is a change that is inherent in Christianity, that you're no longer your old fleshly self, but that you start desiring different things, better things, higher things. There is a change that happens because the spirit that takes up residence in you is, after all, a holy spirit. So he's not going to encourage you to be less holy. He's going to encourage your behavior. But that happens because you are a saved, redeemed person who has the Holy Spirit. The indicative always comes first. The imperative is the result. I'll make it easy. Far too much religion in the world says you get saved by doing stuff. The Bible says... You do stuff because you're saved. You understand that? Yes, sir. 
That's the indicative imperative relationship. And when you get that right, you understand that Paul is never saying, OK, we're free from the law. Now go nuts, because God doesn't care how you behave. Rather, Paul says, Christ accomplishes what the law could never accomplish. Look, the law could say to you over and over again, don't do stuff. Don't do bad stuff. And, and you know, all it does is make you want to do bad stuff. That's Paul's argument. He said, I didn't know I was coveting until the law said, don't covet. Then I realized how much I covet. OK, so the law, no matter how many times it tells you don't do stuff, it can't stop you from doing it. It's external to you. It can't change your heart. It doesn't change your behavior. All it can do is sit in judgment on you and tell you how wrong you are. But Christ, by putting his Holy Spirit inside you, can change your behavior from within and accomplish the very behavioral changes that the law could never actually accomplish. All the law could do is tell you how wrong you were. Christ could actually make you better. And he does that by changing your heart, by giving you his Holy Spirit, by inhabiting you, by enlightening you. The born-again experience, the regeneration experience, all speaks of the newness of the new life, the new Christian, the new covenant. And it is qualitatively new and different than it used to be. So, Christianity is all about we're free from the law, now we're under the law of Christ, and Christ doesn't just give us that law and then say, now do it. Instead, he inhabits us and encourages us, and we end up performing the very things that Christ would have us do. Indicative, imperative. Got it? Now, I swear to you, it was my intention to start at Galatians chapter 1, verse 13, but I just wanted to set the stage again to understand, because there's so much conflict, not here at GCA, there's so much conflict online about what Paul's relationship and what the church's relationship is to Israel. So I was just trying to clarify that though we're free from the law, we are not antinomian, we are not lawless, we are not against the law. The law, circumcision, is all still part of Jewish history. And it's not surprising that Jews would keep the law. But Gentiles are never called to keep the law. And that's what Paul is on about in Galatians. Verse 13, Galatians 1. For you have heard of my former manner of life in Judaism, how I used to persecute the church of God beyond measure, and I tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my contemporaries among my countrymen, being more extremely zealous for my ancestral traditions. But when he who had set me apart, even from my mother's womb, and called me through his grace, was pleased to reveal his son in me, that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with flesh and blood, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went away to Arabia, and I returned once more to Damascus. And then three years later, I went up to Jerusalem to become acquainted with Cephas and stayed with him 15 days, but I did not see any other of the apostles except James, the Lord's brother. Now in what I am writing to you, I assure you before God that I am not lying. Then I went into the regions of Syria and Cilicia, and I was still unknown by sight to the churches of Judea, which were in Christ. But only they kept hearing, he who once persecuted us is now preaching the faith which he once tried to destroy. And they were glorifying God because of me. That's a change. That's a big change. 
That's, I went from Christ-hating and trying to destroy the church of Jesus Christ all the way to I am preaching Christ among the Gentiles. I am undergoing torture for it. I'm undergoing persecution for it. And yet, I'm going to preach that faith which I once upon a time tried to destroy, and who ends up getting the glory? And they were glorifying God because of me. The change is going to happen. Change is going to happen to you. If the Holy Spirit of Christ gets inside you, it is going to change you. It's going to alter you. It's going to conform you. And you're not going to get the glory for it. God gets the glory because this is his divine plan from the beginning because he knows you and chose you while you were in your mother's womb and, in fact, wrote your name down in the Lamb's Book of Life before the foundation of the world. That's how sure and certain it is that God is going to get you and is going to save you. And in the course of this lifetime, he's going to show you that Christ is fully sufficient to get you all the way from here to your eternity. Your flesh can't do it. Your traditions can't do it. Your religion can't do it. Your denomination can't do it. Your parents can't do it. Your heritage can't do it. Worst of all, you can't do it. Your flesh can't do it. The law can't do it. And in far too much of religion, even Christian religion, in order to get you saved, people will take you to the law. And Christ was among the law keepers, teaching them that Christ would free them from all the things that the law could never free them from. If he was willing to withstand the kind of pushback, the kind of torture, the kind of difficulties that he went through in order to preach that Christ is enough, then I think we certainly ought to take a stand and say Christ is enough. Because... He gets all the glory. Not you, not your flesh, and not the law. Got it? Got it, sir. All right, good. Thank you for listening to this week's Salvation by Grace Sunday morning message. We encourage you to visit our website, at salvationbygrace.org for books, Q&As, and our ever-expanding archive of audio sermons. And we invite you to join us next time when we gather around the Word and study the sovereign grace of God.